2: Hello, my name is Christian Axpo Nielsen. I am Associate Professor of History and Human Security at Aarhus University in Denmark. Welcome to the New Books Network. My guest today is Sinisha Maleshevich, who is the Chair of the Sociology Department at University College Dublin. Sinisha's main research interests include the study of war and violence, ethnicity, nation states and nationalism, empires, ideology, Sociological Theory and Comparative Historical Sociology. Today, we will be discussing Sinisha's new book, Why Humans Fight, The Social Dynamics of Close-Range Violence, which will be published very soon by Cambridge University Press. Sinisha, hello and welcome to the program.
1: Thanks very much, Christian, for inviting me.
2: It's my pleasure. Uh, Sinisha. you've published really prolifically on the sociology of violence and nationalism, two topics which you, of course, also link in this book. So some might look at the title of this book and wonder, hmm, what's new? With this in mind, uh, in the acknowledgements at the beginning of your book, you tell the reader why you chose to write this particular book. Please share your reasoning with us.
1: Yeah, so so I mean you can say there are, there are two main reasons. One one is the kind of research related reason uh, linked very much to the work that I've been doing so far, and the other one is perhaps more personal. And so so the research related one is I mean I I published uh, so far two books that are focused exclusively on sociology of violence and war. Uh, both of these books are very much kind of macro focused. The, the first book, uh, the sociology of war and violence, uh, which was published in two thousand. 10 was an attempt to kind of map this whole area of sociology of of, of war, which uh, was quite kind of developed between the two world wars, but then suddenly has disappeared as a a field of study. I mean, there were individual scholars, obviously, who studied war, like Charles Steeley or Michael Mann and a few others, but there was no really defined area of sociology of war. So that book, the intention behind that first book was kind of to map the area, to see you know how sociology uh, can use its own uh, research tools to tell us a little bit more about this. This, this field and since then I think sociology of war has developed now in over the last uh, decade or so we have a number of books uh, uh, you know not many many journal articles kind of from from that particular angle of research then my second book in this area is also very macro oriented uh, that's the the rise of organized brutality historical sociology of violence and here I was trying to kind of connect different areas of research uh, across disciplines again using sociological tools looking at genocide looking at terrorism, looking at revolutions, looking at wars, and see what's common to all of these different forms of organized violence. Uh, And my focus was very kind of macro in that sense, uh, kind of looking historically at the transformation of organized violence over long periods of time, again, trying to to use sociological tools. So this book is different in a sense because it's more uh, focused on the micro and meso level, if you like. Uh, So what I wanted to do is really to see how interpersonal context of violence operates, how people... Uh, and why people fight, why they kill each other in in, in different social contexts—not uh, necessarily, but you know, war is obviously important, uh, revolutions and all these other, but also you know, in, a, in in the context of crime, gang gang violence, homicides and things like that. I wanted to see what's common. Is there anything here that sociologists could, uh, you know, study? As, as a common sociological uh, project if you like. Uh, so, so that's the the focus shifts more in that micro direction meso direction but there is also the framing in it. I mean, there is a link I think between this book and the previous two books. Uh, they are very much linked. Uh, so that's the kind of professional uh, research oriented focus but there's a obviously personal reason behind that as somebody who, who kind of grew up and lived in, in Yugoslav, Yugoslav Federation uh, and was has experienced the collapse of the state I, I really wanted to Also explain to myself, perhaps more than to anybody else, you know, why people that I knew uh, in, in my own hometown have changed dramatically over, you know, kind of fairly short period of time. People that were kind of nice, pleasant neighbors overnight became kind of very sympathetic to the right-wing uh, uh, nationalism and, and kind of were supportive of, uh, or, or you know, at least they were to- tolerating violence that took place in, in the city where I was born, Banja Luka. Uh, although I've studied in Zagreb during the war, so I, it, it was a very unusual experience for me to kind of see, particularly in the early stages of the war, how these things uh, were happening on the ground in the interpersonal context. Uh, and, and I could see, and I had friends obviously in Banja Luka and in Zagreb uh, and, and it was very unusual for me to see how people uh, transform and, and how they behave in these situations. So so there is that kind of personal element, I, I, I would say, uh, attached to this book that is perhaps less visible in my other books.
2: Mm, yeah, that's interesting. I think a lot of the, the research that we do is, you know, there's obviously issues of objectivity and subjectivity when uh, precisely when we deal with those questions that we are asking also for personal reasons but it can also, as I think your book illustrates, uh, give an extra impetus and motivation for performing that research. And I just want to mention that you know you um, you make me think also of how when I'm with my students, one of the things I ask to them or ask of them is how they would react if they witnessed a, an act of of fighting of brutality on on a bus in Denmark. You know, under what circumstances would they intervene? Uh, what considerations go into that and such? Now. This gets us to the next point, which is that in an earlier book, um, which I also quote often to my students, you wrote that there is a human obsession with violence and you contrast the extraordinary degree of public and scholarly interest that we have in historical figures such as Hitler and Stalin with, for example, the much lesser interest in uh, paragons of nonviolence such as Gandhi or Mandela, um, you also note the popular depictions of violence in television and cinema. And here, Mea Culpa, I, as a Scandinavian, I binge Scandinavian noir and all kinds of crime series. Um, so what, in your opinion, explains this obsession um, that we have with acts of violence and fighting in particular?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- this is something that I deal with, as you mentioned, in the Sociology of War and Violence, uh, but also in a few other uh, publications and articles. And, and it, it is, I mean, it, it is very unusual when you look at, at violence, because in in some respects, most kind of moral codes, religious traditions, philosophical traditions... Uh, uh, oppose violence. and condemn violence. The violence is seen as the kind of ultimate evil, uh, sin, whatever a uh, the th- the particular teaching uh, uh, would say. But then, on the other hand, there is this uh, really kind of interest, obsession, uh, fascination with with violent experience, and so that's that's very uh, visible in our popular culture. You know, we we do all watch uh, crime crime shows, and uh, you know, particularly those involving homicides, and we read novels and and. Uh, you know, p- people play video games and things. Uh, so, so television, cinema, our popular culture is, is very much saturated with, with imagery of violence. But much of that, obviously, is not not realistic violence. It's it's a depiction of violence. Uh, so so uh, I think one of the reasons why are we kind of focus so much on violence is precisely because it doesn't happen so often. It's not something that most people vi- uh, see in, in their everyday life. Even people who are violent are not violent uh, most of the time. You know, violence is often as Randall Collins shows in his wonderful book on uh, violence microsociological theory you know human beings are not very good at, at violence not com- ordinary human beings are not very competent at violence you need to to learn how to be violent you need to be trained you need to be skilled in at violence and that's not easy for most human beings uh, so so in that sense there is that fascination comes from precisely from that kind of uh, uh, lack of, of encountering violence on, on an everyday basis. It is something that is is it, it, you could say in, in, in part it's a taboo as well. Uh, it, it is something that uh, we are as human beings are not comfortable with uh, when we encounter, you know, if we are attacked in, somewhere on in the street it, it, it is a scary experience for most human beings, even for those who are kind of, you know, police officers and uh, people in the military, people who are trained, uh, they Encounter with violence is not easy. It never comes easy. It's 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 a, it's a kind of it generates a lot of emotional reactions, and it's something that we deal with. Uh, it leaves some traumatic experiences. Uh, so, precisely because of that reason, we we are fascinated with it. So, in a sense, it's not something that uh, uh, you know. It, it's easy to to watch it on, on TV because you know you feel safe and secure in in, in, in uh, because it's somewhere away. It's 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 at the distance. It's, it doesn't affect you.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, which uh, some scholars have noted about crime procedurals, there's also this kind of um, healing effect that most crime series, except I should mention the Scandinavian ones, tend to resolve the violence, right? I mean, in the end, the message is the bad guys get caught, the good guys win, and order is restored. Um uh, but it, again, it's it's it, it never ce- the fascination never ceases to fascinate me, all, um, which I can see reflected in generations of students as well. Uh, now, you tell your readers in the book that, and I quote: "Descriptions of violence can never be taken at face value, but require contextual and historical decoding." End quote. How does one achieve such decoding without ending up with observations and? Uh, conclusions that are just merely ad hoc or sui generis for for each specific case.
1: Yeah. Okay, so, so I mean, uh, I think we, we do obviously have you know enormous research done on, on different violence, violent experiences throughout history, uh, but you know some of it, especially the further we go in time, is not particularly reliable because uh, obviously descriptions of violence uh, do not necessarily match the actual violence. Uh, so uh, I think the, the the point that I was trying to, to make is that you know we, we need to kind of contextualize violence, and uh, in, in every different historical periods. Uh, depictions of ants were influenced by obviously its own time and, and its own place, uh, and you know in in, in different religious traditions, ants had different role to play. And and I mentioned in uh, perhaps more in, in in my second book on, on the rise of organized brutality how a lot of these kind of early. Uh, uh, descriptions tend to exaggerate the number of people killed uh, in in different battle on different battlefields because the idea was obviously not to impart uh, information on on what actually took place but the idea was to uh, you know, uh, present particular ruler as being uh, very strong, powerful, able to do these things, which, uh, you know, so you, you have all these, as you know yourself as a historian, you know, hundreds of thousands of dead or, you know, millions, but in, in reality, that couldn't be possible, so in a sense. So, so these the, the depictions of violence uh, do not match reality. But even when they do, you know, it's obviously, you know, in a more contemporary context, when we have a very much reliable information from historians, from anthropologists, from many different disciplines, uh, it is important to see how we can kind of make sense of different historical and, and contemporary experiences. So obviously, you know, in, in, in social sciences, and humanities, we can go all the way back to, to uh, kind of this Wendelbund's uh, distinction between the nomothetic and ideographic uh, uh, approaches and, uh, you know, uh, sociology as a Discipline is as being always depicted as a nomatetic one, attempting to generalize. So that's what I try to do in some respects. But but on the other hand, I think what history does, uh, you know, which, which is an ideographic discipline, provides us with with kind of nuance, uh, and and it's necessary. That's why I see myself as a historical sociologist, as somebody who's trying to bridge these two worlds in in some respects. Because obviously, over generalization is not good either, <laughs> because you end up with with you know kind of some maybe overly strong uh, statements which, which don't really work well in many different historical uh, and, and contemporary contexts. So I think my, my view is that we, we can do this. We, we can do something which which would uh, go beyond the kind of individual um, uniqueness of every case. And every case obviously is unique and is generous in some respects. But there are elements that we can build to, to make some generalizations, but they don't have to be in, you know kind of enormously uh, <laughs> uh, 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 ambitious generalizations, if you like. Mm-hmm.
2: As a, as a lapsed political scientist myself, uh, who became a historian, I have to say that I, I reading your work, I always, uh, am wishing that someone would have told me that the field of historical sociology existed at an earlier point in my career, but, uh, discovering it, uh, uh is better late than never. So, um, um, you, um, you say in your book, uh, that you, you coin a term, which I hadn't encountered before, uh. Uh, this term is social pugnacity. Please explain how you define this term, how you arrived at it, and what original insight you believe it allows.
1: Yeah. So, so this is. I mean, I was looking for a concept when I was even before I started writing, which would help me navigate this kind of interpersonal experience of violence, uh, where I wanted to emphasize the kind of the, the social aspect of it. Uh, so, so I was familiar with uh, with generally with the term pugnacity, which uh, was used, I think, uh, initially uh, in and in, in by uh, William. McDougall, a, a psychologist from late 19th, early 20th century British sociologist. Uh, but he used that in a, in a kind of Darwinian, uh, social Darwinian sense as an instinct. You know, he talked about instinct of pugnacity. But when you look it, 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 the, the, you know, back to the Latin term, uh, in terms like pugna, pugno, pugnatum, they they stand for fighting, for battle, uh, for a struggle, for dispute. And that, and I thought we can use this term. You know, this is a much more neutral term than the way how MacDougall is using it. Uh, and but but I wanted to emphasize, emphasize social aspect. So that's why I said social pugnacity captures this, this kind of something that I want to, to argue, what I argue throughout the book. And, and uh, so I think this concept is useful because it can capture the relational. Changeable kind of collective character of close-range fighting, something that I'm I'm, I'm focused on. Uh, so, so, what I want to say, uh, and what I try to do in a book, is that uh, fighting is not an individual attribute. Uh, it's not a product of biology or psychology. Although these all these elements do play a part, as I say in different chapters, but it's a phenomenon generated by contextual interplay between. You know, variety of things between the structural context, between you know different agents involved in in in, in, in the experience of fighting, uh, and and I look at the wider you know social organizations and ideological diffusion and many other things. So so that's why I thought this term would be useful for me uh, because it does capture this experience uh, uh, in in one way which which allows me to say something about this interpersonal character violence of the close range violence.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I also thought of the term pugilism, which I must be etymologically related there. Um, one of, or rather uh, much of the very brutal violence that you describe at the very outset of the book um, is violence that takes place outside of combat. And in introducing your book, you also noticed that you were looking at uh, organized crime, gang violence, uh, other uh manifestations of fighting. Um, but even when we look at combat, there is a lot of violence, uh, for example, mass torturing of pr- or executions of prisoners after the battle has ended uh, and conquest has actually been secured. Do you think that it is worth distinguishing that type of violence fundamentally from that violence which occurs during actual combat?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a good point in a sense because we do see different uh, experiences, different behavior of human beings outside of the combat zone and and in the in the in the combat. Uh, however, w- w- my focus was really looking for also some similarities because even when you, when you are in a combat zone, uh, uh, you know, there is a difference between fighting that is fairly symmetrical when you have two sides which are more or less of equal strength, uh, and and way how they behave and and way how you know we can always think obviously about trench warfare first world war you know this is a never ending type of a conflict but it's also a conflict with its own rituals uh, with its own rules uh uh, not necessarily involving these things that you that that I mentioned, you know, kind of the torturing and execution, because often and, and a lot of kind of research in uh, sociology of violence points in that direction that you see more of these kind of uh, uh, torturing and executions of uh, 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 among the kind of n- uh, non-symmetrical, asymmetrical uh, uh, groups. Uh, so, so in a sense, when one group is completely dominant, it's more likely to do this. And we see that kind of historically, obviously, in, in medieval societies, uh, you know, we, we have lots of these, obviously, gruesome examples of what what was happening, but often it was, it was a kind of, you know, uh, aristocrats doing this to peasants, you know, uh, torturing them, sending them a message, you cannot do this. Uh, you know because you're trying to to do something to to live above your station or or you're demanding certain rights that don't belong to you so so the element of the status discrepancy is important in that context and we we see that also in, in many other contexts, uh uh, uh you know, Fuji's work on Rwanda is interesting also, the kind of this, this symbolic character of this of abuse. And, you know, obviously in, in the Yugoslav uh, wars, we, we saw a lot of this happening also, particularly in the part that you've done research on that. So, you know, kind of the role of paramilitaries and and, and you know, the kind of the, the, the symbolic abuse uh, that is associated with, you know, for example, uh, 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 male-on-male rape, you know, which was very, very, very uh, uh, prevalent, particularly in, in the Bosnian war and a lot of research now. Is coming out of this, which has that element of humiliating the enemy, of uh, kind of uh, uh, establishing these hierarchies, status hierarchies between the two sides. Uh, but it's not something that that happens on on, on the battlefield. So, so you're right in that sense. Th- 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 these are different experiences. But my focus has been largely more on kind of on interpersonal context of fighting, and and uh, you know, any perhaps th- this is more symmetrical in a sense. Uh, so I didn't really study, although I do have that in in the second part of the book, which is more much more empirical, dealing with with the uh, interviews of the former combatants, where you do see experiences that they do mention experiences of torture that they not that they participated in, but that they, they've heard of or witnessed indirectly and things like that. Uh, so th- this was happening uh, and is part of many 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 kind of violent experiences. Obviously, gang uh, gang uh, gangs do that uh, uh, often in sometimes in a more systematic way because this is an important element of of uh, you know, kind of bringing somebody into the gang or differentiating who belongs to which gang. And also if, if you do something which doesn't address the rules of the gang behavior, torture is a mechanism of uh, sending a message uh, so, so obviously there are differences between the professional organizations that avoid these kinds of things, or if they do it, they do them hiddenly, in uh, uh, you know, for, for very instrumental reasons, and organizations which are less professional. So they they rely more on, on torture, they rely more on on kind of these kinds of uh, uh, things because they don't have a comp- complete organizational capacity. Uh, uh, so they, you know, they have, this is a different mechanism of control.
2: Right, right. I mean, I think one of the interesting aspects is the of the book is the truly global reach of it. Uh, I mean, uh, I didn't sit down and make a list, but you certainly have examples from many different continents. Uh, and, of course, you also have a lot of reflections on the meanings of fighting uh, in various cultures, from those that are, quote unquote, more aggressive to those in which... Um, it is uh, quite clearly not condoned and is less acceptable. Um, this made me. This was something that I was also reflecting on Sinisha recently when I went to um, a, a fantastic exhibit on the Vikings of the East that is currently in uh, at my university in, in Aarhus in Denmark. And there were some quite subversive narratives there. I have to say, in in a, in a Danish national context where the brutality, uh, or barbarism, if you will, of the Vikings at the time was compared unfavorably to, um, the, uh, civilized nature of, for example, uh, various Arabic dynasties in the Middle East at the time. Um, and, and this was done, mind you, not by modern anthropologists, but by, you know, actually looking at the primary sources and what they, the Arabs of the time, how they reacted to, for example, the practice of human sacrifice among Vikings, et
1: cetera. I think that's a very good, sorry for interrupting. I think that's a very good example. It's an excellent example because that shows us, uh, I mean, in a sense, when you have a much better organizational capacity uh, as Arabs did at that time, when compared to uh, kind of Vikings, you you are less inclined to rely on, on these mechanisms of torture or kind of you know something that we we would call barbaric practices because you have other mechanisms to do that you can you can control people uh, on on a much more successful uh, way than than you know and when you don't and that's the nature of medieval europe you you have to you know hang uh, them, you have to kind of uh, uh, torture them, you, ha- you have to kind of cut their heads off and and, and put them in front of the you know uh, entrance to the town uh, in order to send a message because you have no other mechanisms to control large segments of population. So I think that's a very good example.
2: Yeah. Yes, I mean and obviously from from the perspective of almost any society uh, as you also point out in the book the uh, if you can maintain that level of Uh, state or societal control without resorting to violence, then there's a lot of costs at all kinds of levels that you don't incur. Um, One of the more fascinating sentences in your book, um, in my opinion, is when you write, uh, and I'm going to read it out loud here, I uh, quote, just as human sexuality cannot be reduced to procreation, but involves complex emotional and cognitive interactions the same applies to social fighting, and quote. Now, Sinisha, I don't really have a question linked to this quote, but I did want to include it, and um, I don't know if you have any additional reflections that you might, might want to share on that point with the audience.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm not an expert on sexuality. My my wife actually is a sociologist of sexuality, so I have the opportunity to talk to her. And and, and you know and, and I think sociology, sexuality, and violence are both interesting topics in a sense because you know they are something that that have been integral to a human experience for for thousands and thousands of years, but are also have been taboos in in, in you know many societies and even in our own society they're they're still taboo in a particular way, but but you know they shape. Uh, uh, human uh, experience and also social experience, uh, and and we 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 started learning much more about human sexuality very late. You know, you know, from maybe late nineteenth century onwards, we you know kind of societies know more about you know complexity of, 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 of human uh, uh, you know s- s- social experience and and now we know that you know this is not something only about procreation it, it is a very complex uh, you know phenomena it, it is it involves so many kind of uh, complex emotional interactions it changeable. Uh, it, it is linked to, obviously, social mores. Uh, it also involves cognitive interactions. It involves power interactions, many other things. So, so uh, we've learned a lot about sexuality, but I think we, we haven't reached that level in, in the study of violence, in a sense, because we still, you know, not we as researchers, but I think, you know, general uh, audience has certain misconceptions and stereotypes stereotypes about violence. It's something that is fairly easy to do, and it's, you know, it's, it, it uh, always uh, happens in the same way. And it, it, you know, it's always instrumental. It is about kind of, uh, uh, it's it's integral to, uh, you know, some some instrumental ambitions of of leaders or people who. Who, who who use violence for their own uh, purposes, things like that. But now you know, as we, as we study violence both on macro and, and a micro level, we 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 see it, it's very complex thing. It's not about violence has its own kind of dynamics. It has its own autonomy. It generates uh, completely different emotional experiences, cognitive experiences. We we learn through uh, the experience of violence, or at least people who have experienced violence. That they, you know that influences them not only traumatically, which obviously is something that 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 it has been studied, but also it, it, it shapes uh, your understanding of the world. Uh, and there's so many things attached to violence. So, so I think, particularly, uh, studying violence on this micro level, interpersonal level. We we do the sheer uh, complexity. We, we, you know, we see the sheer complexity of, of that experience, and particularly that element of social. Pugnacity that I I'm, I'm interested in tells me a great deal about you know how emotions develop how emotions shape our interaction and also how human beings in small groups uh, can can uh, influence each other and 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 emotional dynamics transforms this is what I analyzed, particularly in the second part of the book you know the experience of killing and things like that. Uh, you know, and and that's, uh, you know, something that is worth exploring m- much more. You know, I, I think I, I just uh, kind of uh, tried to do this now, but it's it's something I think it's worth exploring more and more.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: Right, and I, I would also look forward to seeing you um, uh, with or without your 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 wife exp exploring uh, the the intersections of, of of the of the topics. Um, Uh, of of your research and hers because there's a lot of questions that have been raised there and uh, at least uh, I'm certainly no expert on that but um, just out from based on what you say in the uh, book uh, as well as the examples I'm familiar with from the former Yugoslavia and other conflicts there's so many questions that, that one asks about the intersection of violence slash fighting on the one hand and, and sexuality on the other hand. So I think that's what really made that that sentence of yours jump out at me. Now, you know, Sinisha, that I've worked at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the ICTY. And one of the things that I heard from a lot of people who worked in the police in Bosnia, for example, before the war, were explanations such as they would say to me, well, Christian, before the war, everyone in Yugoslavia knew who the troublemakers were in my town or my village and the authorities kept them under wraps when they did something bad or when they uh, got drunk and, uh, provoked or participated in acts of violence and fighting, then they would be punished and life would go on. And it would be clear that society did not condone such acts later. However, when Yugoslav society started to disintegrate, those very same authorities, this could be at the municipal or regional or Republican levels, uh, actually started enabling those pathological actors. So I was curious, what do you make of that explanation? Does that ring true to you? And what factors do you as a historical sociologist identify that cause social structures to shift from preventing violence to enabling it?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question, and it's it's a huge question really, uh, to answer. Uh, uh, I I I would say my ex- my experience uh, from former Yugoslavia it, very much it, it is very much along the lines of what what you're saying, but also re- reading and kind of getting to know other other experiences and other case studies. Uh, I think one one element which is interesting is. Uh, you know, we we can start from that thing that human, you know, what Randall Collins is arguing that human beings are are not particularly competent in violence. So in in situations of of uh, collapse of the state or wars or you know kind of revolutions and things like that, you you, you have to rely on people who have certain skills, violent skills. And and as you know, Christiane, you've done work on on Arkan and other people. Uh, you know, they were uh, very much uh, integral. To, to to this violent uh, to this violent period uh, because they 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 had these skills you know uh, of kind of being violent being essentially tugs but kind of almost a uh, uh, professional tugs because they were employed by by you know you you've researched this much more extensively yeah. than the, I have
2: mercenaries of a sort mercenaries
1: yeah. in a sense yes ben and it's interesting how regardless whether you know they, they were working for communist system or they were working for serbian uh, kind of nationalist state uh, you know they had to rely on their skills but because they had these these violent skills they could you know uh, kill people they they could uh, 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 mobilize certain number of, of uh, you know uh, soccer fans and things like that, and uh, capture uh, territories and things like which they did. So in a sense, we we do it, it is very much true that uh, these are people that everybody knew were troublemakers. They were the criminals. They were the thugs. Uh, but uh, in in times of uh, you know. Uh, a collapse, uh, state authorities, or, which were also collapsing, and in, in these parallel organizations emerging, uh, were, were inclined to uh, use these individuals, and that has happened across. You know, this is not obviously unique to Yugoslav experience. It has been happening all over, and it, it, it's it's very likely. Uh, that is also happening in, 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 in war in Ukraine uh, on, on both sides, uh, that, uh, you know, these are the people who have been trained, they know, they have experience of fighting, uh, but they are also, they are pathological uh, individuals in many instances. Uh, uh, so, so obviously, it's very difficult to rein them in. Uh, eventually, when you give them a, a power, you give them a, a, a authority, uh, and then that's very difficult later on to to ma- manage them, and that we, we had these many experiences even in Sarajevo with uh, Yuka Pras and all of these people, which were in, initially very important for fighting for defending the city, but they were criminals, and obviously they were they had their own interests. So 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 in that sense, it's uh, it's not easy to to balance that. Uh, but but many uh, you know th- this is not unique to, to Yugoslav experience.
2: Absolutely, I mean, it's it's easier to. Uh, essentially, activate these uh, forces than it is to find the off button, uh, because op- often um, their nature, their 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 motivation transcends the more narrowed, structured interests of the state or para state entities that are uh, commissioning them, as it were. Um, now. This gets us to the empirical side of the book, and um, I'd like to ask you to just give us uh, an overview, obviously, uh, other than my privileged self, uh, the listeners will not have uh, read the book yet at this point. Uh, So please tell us about some of the empirical case studies that you use in the book and why you chose to include them
1: okay so so maybe just to say uh uh, 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 you know a a few things about the structure of the book so the first part of the book is, is largely kind of uh, theoretical uh, in nature trying to kind of uh, tease out what we know from different disciplines uh, from biology including you know neuroscience and uh, uh, you know variety of other disciplines uh, and psychology and economics and ideology and, uh, and whether any of these things uh, uh, what, what we actually know, can explain, uh, you know, the, the, the fighting motivation for fighting. Uh, so what, what I do in each of these chapters, in the first six chapters, I look at the variety of, of this literature. Uh, the first chapter is focusing really on the on the, on the physiology, if you like, in biology of of violence. Are there any biological preconditions for us to to be violent? And when when human beings are violent, you know, how how biological uh, explanations can deal with this? And in the second chapter, I deal with with the kind of economic explanations, you know, focusing more on self-interest and looking at, at uh, you know, kind of what the rational choice and kind of other instrumentalist explanations have to offer. Uh, then in Chapter 3, I look a little bit at the kind of uh, explanations that focal, focus on the role of ideas and culture, uh, kind of the, the so-called ideological fighting, uh, you know, how wh- whether this is really the uh, main reason for fighting. Uh, then I look a little bit at the, the role, of course, in power in forcing people to fight against their will, which is obviously an important element in what states do and what uh, uh, criminal syndicates do and gangs and things like that. Then I also look a little bit at the, at the kind of uh, uh, you know uh, uh, emotional attachment that people have to people that matter to them. You know, family, friends, and, and these networks of micro bonding. You know how we fight for others. When do we fight for others? And I would argue that's that's a very important element, perhaps more important than fighting for oneself. Um, and then I also look at the uh, experience of non-fighting uh, because that's also not something that that is uh, you know default position. It needs to be explained. You know how non-fighting happens. Uh, you know when 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 people are more likely to. To not not fight and obviously that's also linked with the particular social organizations and things like that. So that's the first part of the book, uh, which is mostly theoretical not exclusively as you mentioned already, I do look at lots of different examples, uh, short examples, every chapter ends with comparison of two different cases uh, in different parts of the world and I wanted to be as global as possible so I was looking at lots of different examples. The second part of the book is, is much more of, of a kind of relying on on interviews that I've done with former combatants. So, so there are five chapter chapters really here. Uh, four of them are, uh, you know, are very empirical, using this material uh, with interviews. So uh, these are interviews done with uh, uh, former uh, combatants uh, from Croatian army, from Bosnian Serb army, uh, from Provisional IRA. Uh, I've also analyzed letters from uh, uh, the soldiers from the First, uh, Second War and Spanish War, uh, Second World War, and Spanish Civil War. Indian soldiers who fought in the First World War in Europe. Uh, wehrmacht soldiers and, and the letters that we have from them and US spanish volunteers so so i look i, I tried to kind of combine uh, all what we know from all these different uh, research techniques if you like uh, to see you know how how they describe their own experiences of fighting uh, in, in with interviews that I've, I've i've conducted myself with uh, and uh, with the former uh, uh, bosnian serb soldiers and croatian soldiers uh I, I was really focusing more on people who did have a experience of battlefields so 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 I've excluded everybody I mean I've interviewed many many people many more but they are not really in this book because they many soldiers weren't really uh, uh, involved with with the combat uh, particularly on, on a long-term basis uh, so, so these these are kind of the the, the experiences that I, that I explore and and I use a lot of these interviews from, um, because they tell us a lot about the kind of social dynamics that develops in the battlefield during fighting, uh, before the fighting, during fighting, and after fighting. Also the way how uh, the, uh, their emotions are uh, developed and, and, you know, kind of uh, reflected, uh, how they reflect on the experience of fighting and the experience of seeing somebody dying that mattered to them their comrades and uh, also their own uh, sense of responsibility towards people back home, families and friends, which obviously is important in uh, in the first, uh, uh, you know, as as, as an important motivation for them to stay on fighting regardless of what's happening. Uh, So so all of these kind of different cases uh, help me uh, kind of understand how the social dynamics of close range uh, fighting uh, operates.
2: Yeah, and I think again, uh, it's 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 really impressive how you 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 not only include these case studies, but approach them from so many angles, where you really bring to bear the uh, tool set that you have uh, acquired from from surveying the available uh, literature in in various fields. Would it be correct to state, Sinisha, that your own view based on your review of the available research is that human beings are, first of all, not inherently violent and that they are often even averse to fighting, but that violence has become more widespread and exacerbated in terms of casualties and, um, uh, intended and unintended consequences because of modern state structures and technology.
1: Yes, that's in, in a way, uh, uh, broadly speaking, what I've been trying to argue in, in in all these three books that I've written on violence. Uh, so obviously, you know, th- this whole uh, issue starts with with the with the debate of Hobbes versus Rousseau, uh, and and you know, Hobbesians arguing that human beings are inherently violent, and Rousseauians arguing we are not, you know, we are peaceful creatures. Uh, so, so I could say I I lean more in the direction of, of Rousseau, but not completely, and I say that very clearly. I think in the in the in the sociology war and violence, I say they're both wrong because they're not sociologists. So they're both social contract theorists. They, they assume there was this kind of state of nature, which obviously we know now that there was no state of nature ever. Uh, so I think, you know, if if you bring a little bit more sociology to these kind of uh, uh, all debates, uh, you know, we, we, we can see uh, that, uh, uh, you know, s- saying that human beings are... are uh, not uh, prone to violence uh, is really more to uh, more. Uh, it's not Rousseauian in a sense that we are inherently good. I'm not. I'm not. I wouldn't argue that. I'm more leaning in the direction of what Collins is arguing that we are not very competent in violence in a sense. That's that's you know as as creatures we don't have a you know a, a, a horns or, or sharp teeth and you know strong jaws or anything. We we, we are very as, as individuals we we cannot compare to lion or you know any, any kind of predatory animal. Uh, Uh, We we could be easily overpowered, but obviously we rely on other human beings and and we've been doing that for thousands of years uh, very successfully and we've become so powerful. Uh, So our strength as human beings and and our kind of A capacity for violence uh, stems very much from our ability to create social organizations, particularly the state. Uh, So that's what we've been doing historically. And and, and this is, for me, the origins of of large-scale violence have to be linked to development of these powerful social organizations. And obviously, as you mentioned rightly, technology. Technology is a part of that. Obviously, we couldn't build... Technologies without having social organizations, because they are always inventions. But if you don't have a uh, organizations to to produce this on a massive scale, then then inventions are not, uh, you know, they don't, they are not materialized, they are not realized. Uh, so that's what I try to do, in a sense, to to emphasize, uh, you know, kind of this inherent. Uh, uh, Weakness of us as a species uh, for violence, and, and also we are not comfortable with with violent experiences. Uh, as I said, even people you know who who do this uh, uh, on on a professional basis, and we do have a lot of research on on, on, on police officers, particularly American police officers, on on uh, you know soldiers uh, being uh, fighting in many wars. Uh, it, many of them are not really uh, comfortable with this you know even though they do that on a regular basis there is a breaking point you know for for every almost every human being um, uh, so, so in that sense what matters is really looking at the at social organizations uh that have increased their capacity over 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 hundreds of years or over thousands of years and and theres that's what i do in in, in some respects in in this, uh, my 2017 book the rise of organized brutality i try to show that you know in this increasing capacity for violence is linked with with social development. It is linked with with capacity of, of these
2: big and powerful states. Well, I, I think you know there's a point in your book that I, I chuckled out loud because you you in a in a kind of humorous way dismiss what and this is not your term, but what is kind of the almost comical inadequacy of the human bodying as a, a body as a fighting instrument. Um, you said, we're not sharks, we're not lions. Uh, and yet, you know, the paradox which we are living with is that the human mind is supremely lethal in the sense of having, uh, not only developed these state structures, which of course can do much good, but also can do much harm as well as of course, the technology that enables us to literally obliterate, uh, other species as well as potentially ourselves from, from this planet, both inside and, outside of of armed conflict and and again that's where i really like your work because you you do survey so many fields so now i'm going to ask you a question with a little bit of an introduction um that i can tell you Sinisha is a question that although none of our colleagues has explicitly asked me to ask you this question i'm sure that they all want to know the answer Um, so by way of introduction when i took my comprehensive oral exams Uh, at Columbia University as a history PhD candidate, Uh, I remember afterwards my late doctoral advisor Mark von Hagen saying to me, Christian, this is the last time in your professional life that you will ever be able to read so broadly. From now on, you will be uh, struggling to keep up with the scholarly literature on increasingly narrow topics. You, Sinisha, have surveyed an enormous scope of scholarly literature from many different fields in your book. So please, what is your secret? How do you manage to keep abreast of developments in so many scholarly fields?
1: (laughs) Yeah, maybe I do the opposite. What what your supervisor <laughs> said to you. no. I mean, for me, I, I I was always a great reader. I loved reading, you know. And and, and for me, uh, uh, it, you know, kind of, I continue to do that. I I, I don't read uh, necessarily only strategically. There is an element, obviously, when you have to write an article and you have certain deadlines. Uh, you focus more strategically on certain things that you need to master. But I I kind of read uh, almost every day, and I always read things which which I find kind of interesting, puzzling, even though they may not necessarily be related to what I'm actually working on. So so in a sense, I think that's Perhaps the way how you 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 kind of connect all these different areas. Uh, although I, I could say I, I'm also I mean I have a few few research areas that that I, that I do more research more reading in general than than others. Uh, you know I work on violence, I work on nationalism, and work on social theory. So sometimes I, I I try I mean I say if I if I study violence I have to I have to read as much as possible from very different disciplines because I have to learn I have to from other people I have to learn from you know what other disciplines have to say about this phenomena. So so I always. feel feel like, you know, it's not adequate for me, even though I'm a sociologist, trained sociologist. That's not enough for me. Uh, You know, I have to read, uh, you know, uh, everything more or less what's been done on violence in order to say something, but still kind of maintaining my own sociological kind of... uh, 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 you know, uh, angle on on all of it. So, so when when I read something which, which you know, which is from paleontology or anthropology or, or violence, I, I try to bring sociological, uh, uh, you know, glasses to it and and try to see. Okay, let's see what you know. Does this make sense? You know, in you know how these people behaved in in that time. You know, because obviously, as as, as human beings, there there is there are so many things that are common to us, regardless of when we live. So, so you're right. It's not easy to to kind of survey this uh, uh, enormous uh, uh, literature, and this literature is is there's more and more of it. uh, But the problem is a lot of it is is becoming more and more specialized. So, so I think. I, I, either you can go in being extremely specialized in, in a particular uh, area, or, or you have to try to be kind of to balance this to be kind of more of a generalist, but generalist within particular field. So the, the field of violence is an enormous field anyway, uh, but you know, this is still uh, mm-hmm. narrow enough to say, okay, you know, this I have certain expertise in this area, but I don't know many other. Fields, you know, that, I don't, that they're out there in sociology or anthropology or any other areas. So, so I try to keep abreast, uh, or, but these develop. It's not easy to do that. It, it, it does. It, it is demanding. It's, it, it's getting worse in that respect. There's more and more books that I want to read. I have so many books and articles, you know, on, on my desk uh, that, that I'm just <laughs> trying to, you know, use the summer to read more of it. And it's, uh, uh, but I think we I do have to ask ourselves these questions. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I was going to say that I sometimes have a sneaking suspicion that that all the time that I've uh, spent in my life watching uh, television series and films uh, that uh, are about violence or fighting, uh, that's the time that you were actually reading scholarly literature about violence or fighting.
1: No, I, I watch films as well.
2: <laughs> okay, good. That makes me feel a little bit better, but then makes the question even more acute. Uh, uh, well... Now, having paid you this compliment, I'm going to turn around and um, uh, ask a question that some might perceive as being a a little bit of a backhanded compliment, but it certainly isn't intended to be so. So, you know, I've noticed, I've read, I I think I can say uh, most of your books, and I've noticed that in them, including in this one, you often systematically and in a very um keen and precise and also enjoyable way you tackle each of these large thematic or disciplinary approaches to the topic at hand and you then incisively summarize them and you point out the strengths and deficiencies of each of them and having kind of dissected or uh, if we want to use the language of violence drawn and quartered them uh, you then move on to the next big topic in the next chapter now Some readers um, uh, might, however, feel that this leaves them wanting for the ultimate answer, namely, what is Sinisha Maleshevich's preferred methodology uh, for studying why humans fight? What would you say to such a reader asking such an obnoxious question?
1: Yeah, it's not an obnoxious question. It's a good question. I mean, basically, what I try to do—if we focus on, on on these three books on violence—but but you're right, I do that in in many other books as well on, on nationalism and ethnic relations and things like that. Uh, I mean, the idea for me here is really to see again what we know, what are the available approaches, uh, what, you know. And, and I'm trying to kind of—it's uh, a sort of a starting position for me. It's also a learning experience for me. Uh, so when I was reading and adjusting all these different literature. Uh, I was trying to kind of summarize them to say these are the key issues here, these are the key points, these are the key answers that they provide. But I find them you know, problematic for these and these reasons. This is what, what's, what's valuable, what's good, what's worth preserving, what's worth building on. Uh, so, so that's usually the kind of the you know first or second step that I do, but I do kind of try to kind of develop a, a th- theoretical angle, which is present uh, in, in, in I think, in all of my particularly last five books or so, uh, where, where I focus focus on these three processes which I find the most kind of uh, important they're not the only processes but I, I, I find them useful for organizing uh, uh, you know my own understanding of, of these phenomena so so I look at this you know kind of uh, coercive organizational capacity how it grows through time and importance of it uh, that's very visible in, in my uh, 2017 book where, where I'm very explicit about this and then I look at the wars and revolutions and uh, terrorism and genocide through, through this prism then i look at the role of ideological capacity and penetration through through society and i also look at the micro level uh, you know what I call the micro solidarity, the development of micro solidarity. So, so these three processes are present uh, in, in most of my books, particularly in, in the last uh, uh, five books, as I said. Uh, and and that's a kind of theoretical. They are the main theoretical tools uh, through which I organize this uh, knowledge, through which I criticize alternative perspectives, and through which I try to explain, you know, the, the phenomena that I study. So, so this is not an ultimate answer. So, so it, you know, I do pr- don't provide an ultimate answer, but I do provide kind of uh, an angle through which we, we can uh, perhaps uh, uh, start understanding the phenomena that, that I study. So so even in this book, I, I kind of, I, I do this uh, extensively. The first half of the book is very much kind of engaging with what's out there, what we know. And I recognize the importance of many of these perspectives. But I, then again, say, okay, you know, uh, economic reasons, uh, uh, biological reasons do matter, but they don't ha- explain this phenomenon. But I say ideology does matter more. I say organizational uh, power and the power matters more and i say uh, you know this kind of micro bonds matter more so so then i work more and bring the kind of this these tools that i've developed in previous books to explain this phenomena here but then i add also a few other things the role of emotions and things like that uh, so, so, so in theoretical terms i you know there is a particular uh, perspective that i've been developing now for a while perhaps last 15 years or so, uh, and, and it's it it's cumulative in a sense. You could see how it links. You know, Different books are linked very much. You know, The, the, the way how I explain nationalism in, let's say, Grounded Nationalism book or in the 2013 book, Nation States and Nationalism, uh, I use similar tools to explain violence, but obviously context is different and, and uh, phenomena is, is different.
2: Sinisha, my last question for you today is, what major avenues of future research would you like to see pursued on this topic? And what major lessons would you like readers to draw from your book?
1: Okay, so obviously uh, uh, violence is an enormous topic uh, that has been studied by so many different disciplines. Uh, but there is still not, I think, enough uh, uh, interaction between different disciplines. So, so we have the kind of psychology of violence, we do have so, uh, uh, sociology of violence, anthropology of violence, and so on and so forth. But you know, uh, that's in, in some ways ways is, is what I try to do to go across these different disciplines. And I think I, I would like to see more of this kind of research. That you know, you have a research team, so people: one is psychologist, one is historian, one is uh, anthropologist, uh, sociologist, and they work together to produce this kind of uh, uh, research on, on on a specific topic of, of violence uh, that is cross-discipline in, in, in a genuine sense that people can contribute to using the knowledge in, in different research tools uh, because this is a this is the same phenomenon uh, it, it's just that we are studying from different perspectives uh, there is also that element of kind of research uh, which is either uh, overly macro macro based or overly micro based uh, and and I think we, we we need more more kind of interaction between these two that's is not easy because people who do macro-type research on violence tend to be historians, historical sociologists, uh, people who have, you know, kind of long-term vision and knowledge of different uh, historical periods and historical epochs, while people who study micro-sociology violence tend to be mostly psychologists, micro-sociologists, uh, who, who are kind of looking at the specifics, uh, you know, minute details of uh, interpersonal uh, violence. And uh, But I think it's necessary to do this kind of work. I mean, I don't think one person can do this. I mean, I, I, I try to do that, but obviously I don't have all these skills and, and having research teams doing these kind of work, uh, or, or studies would be much more productive. It would, would generate much more uh, for us you know, to know more about violence. Um, uh, and there are obviously this specific context of violence, specific uh, experiences of violence, particularly organized violence. So we do have, let's say, lots of research on on, on theories of and, and kind of experiences of revolutions. We have that on genocides. We have that on terrorism. We have that on on, uh, on on um, wars in general but again not as much interaction between these different uh, fields and i think that's also an area which will be good to to do this to bring people who are experts in revolutions and people who are experts in genocide and war and terrorism and see what, what they have to say, uh, you know, how they can do, how can they make links? Because they are obviously links. We do know that people uh, who take part in, in genocides and revolutionaries and, and soldiers, uh, you, uh, you know, have uh, some similar experiences. So I think that's worth exploring. And also, differences that they show are, are worth exploring. So these are just kind of some very general, vague uh, visions of how, how this field could develop further uh, across disciplines.
2: Well, that, that certainly sounds like a, a, a lot of, of uh, potential research that's waiting to be done there. And I think anyone who reads your book is not only going to learn a lot about this, but I think also feel inspired to, first of all, go and read much of the literature that you have marshaled and identified, and hopefully also to go and conduct relevant research that will help answer some of these questions you've uh, indicated. Um, Sinisha, thank you for a uh, very interesting and also uh, insightful interview. Uh, today we've been discussing Sinisha Maleshevich's new book, Why Humans Fight The Social Dynamics of Close Range Violence, which will be published in early August 2022 by Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much, Sinisha.
1: Thank you very much, Christian, for organizing this event and for your very insightful questions.
2: Thank you, and thank you to the listeners. This has been another episode of the New Books Network. Take care and read lots of good books. Goodbye.